But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father, father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with, work, with his works and by works. Faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would speak to us a powerful and specific word to each of us individually. We pray that you would move us along in faith, that we would be compelled and encouraged by Jesus to know that our faith is real and alive, and that we would act on this faith, that we would act on your promises. We pray, Lord, for those who don't know you yet, that they would come to know you. We ask, Father, that you would help us as a church to trust you and obey you and follow you collectively. So speak, Lord, to us. Cause us to grow. Change our hearts. Show us the glories of Christ that we might be changed from one degree of glory to the next. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God loves everyone. God loves everyone. He wants everyone to be saved. Those are biblical verses. The world loves those verses, and they should love those, those verses. But the world might misunderstand the fact that God loves everyone and that God wants everyone to be saved. They might take that to, to a further extent in this way. We shouldn't judge anyone. Everyone will go to heaven. At least those who want to go to heaven. No one will go to hell. No one will face judgment except maybe the really, really, really bad people. They might go to hell. But other than them, for the most part, everyone goes to heaven. Everyone will live happily ever after. Now, when I hear that, I think as a Christian, we certainly don't want to be judgmental, right? We don't want to hate others. We want to kill, we want to hate and kill self-righteousness in our own lives. We don't want to have a condescending attitude toward others. We should fight that in our own souls. I mean, we're sinners too, right? But not all who say they are religious should feel safe. And that's what I think is the danger of that, that worldly mentality. Not all those who are religious are safe. Not all those who think they are safe are safe from God's coming judgment. I mean, we know from John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So all religion won't lead you to God. All religion won't lead you to the Father. All religion won't save. Acts 4, 12 says there's no, there's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So not everyone goes to heaven. Heaven. Not everyone is saved. Not everyone avoids judgment. Not everyone avoids hell and God's wrath. You can't. 
There's only one way to avoid these things, and that is through Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, you need to understand, if you forget everything else we say, you need to understand the main message of Christianity. And the main message of Christianity is about God. The good news that we have is God. God is your creator. God made you to know him and enjoy him and reflect him in this world, to relate to others for his glory and to enjoy him directly in your relationship with him. But God is not only the creator, God is our judge because we have rebelled against God. We have rebelled against his design to enjoy him rather than enjoying him as our supreme treasure. We want to use him to enjoy other things as our, our gods, our fake gods, our counterfeit gods, our idols. Because we want to build our identity on something other than God, someone other than God, that's sin. And that's rebellion. And because of that, the wages of sin, the penalty for sin, the judgment for sin is eternal death in hell. That's what we all deserve. But the good news is that God is not only creator and judge, God is Jesus. God the Son became a man, took on human flesh. That's what we're celebrating next month for Christmas. That God came. And became a man, Jesus. He lived the perfect life we should have lived, died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death. So that God is not only Jesus, God is Lord. God is treasure. God is Savior. If we receive Jesus as our Lord, Savior, and treasure, we can be forgiven of our sins. And we can go to heaven. We can live with God forever on the new earth to come. That's through Jesus. Only Jesus can save, and Jesus saves sinners like us. Amen? And so if you're not a Christian, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might say, PJ, I hear that message. I think I understand what you're saying, but I could never become a Christian because I know Christians, and I know some Christians who are hypocrites. They're fake. They say they believe in Jesus, and they do believe in Jesus, but they're the most self-righteous, condescending, self-centered self-assured, arrogant people. I know they're closed-minded, they're bigoted. They're condescending. I could never be a Christian because there's a bunch of hypocrites in Christianity. Well, if that is your objection to Christianity, I would like to say that that is a strong objection to Christianity. That is, that, that's tough. And I want to say, first of all, that Christians have been sinful, sinfully hypocritical, have been inconsistent, and we have sinned against God and against you. And because of that, we need God's forgiveness and we need your forgiveness. So we need to apologize for that if, if we're the ones who did it. Even if I could on behalf of Christians apologize, I'd love to do that and just say, please forgive us for that. You're right. Christians are sinful when we're hypocritical and condescending and self-righteous and arrogant. But the second thing I want to say before you discard Christianity or reject Christianity, let me say Jesus hates, hates false Christianity and hypocrisy more than you do. And so does James. This whole chapter, this whole section that we're going to read is all about exposing fake Christianity. But we don't have to just look at James. We can listen to Jesus himself. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out many demons in your name? Didn't we do many miracles in your name? Then I, Jesus says, then I will announce to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you lawbreakers. I don't know you. Jesus hates false Christianity. He hates fake Christianity. He hates hypocritical Christianity. And there are a lot of people who say that Jesus is their Lord, that he's their savior, that he's their treasure, but they don't treasure him. They don't submit to his lordship. They don't cling to him for salvation. He has not changed them. You know, I've been a member of four different churches, gospel churches in my life. I've been a pastor at three of the four churches. And in one of those churches, when I was pastoring, and in all three churches where I was pastoring, I was in charge of the membership process. And so in one of these churches, there was someone who wanted to join our church, but they were living with their partner and regularly committing sexual immorality. They were conflicted about it. They went through the church's membership process, went through the classes. I did the membership interview, and they wanted to join the church. 
Now, if I brought that person to a members meeting today, if we had a members meeting today, should you, BBC, take that person, don't answer out loud, but should you take that person into membership if this was our church member, if this was our church and it was our members meeting today? Should you take them into membership? Why or why not? James wants us in this passage to understand what real faith is so that we don't mistake it for false faith in Jesus. And beyond that, James and God want to encourage us in our faith in Jesus. So here's the main goal. And I'm not going to repeat this main goal because it really is kind of the intended effect, but it's not going to drive the sermon here. The main goal that I hope comes out for you guys is this. I want you to be encouraged and moved by Jesus in knowing that your faith is real so that you keep acting on it. That's what I want. That's what I want the effect of this sermon in this text. To be encouraged and moved by Jesus so that you know that your faith is real and you keep acting on that faith. But to drive this sermon and to get to that goal, James actually gives us the main question of the sermon. It's in verse 14. Look at verse 14. This is the main question of the whole passage. Look at verse 14. The main question is this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? What good is it? Is it any good? What do you guys think? No. It's no good, okay? And then the second question, and really here's the main question for us, can that faith, I'm going to call this faith that doesn't have works, faith that doesn't have actions, I'm going to call this faith actionless faith, okay? A faith without any actions. Can actionless faith in Jesus save that person? That's the question. The second question here in verse 14. Can actionless faith in Jesus save someone? What do you think the answer is? How many of you say yes? How many of you say no? Okay. Yes, the answer is no. No, actionless faith cannot save a person. That's what James's answer is. Now, the rest of our the rest of our sermon is going to think about four reasons. He gives us four reasons why the answer is no. Can actionless faith say actionless faith in Jesus save a person? No. Why not? Four reasons, okay? Verses 15 through 17 is our first reason. I'll give you the reason here. No actionless no actionless faith cannot save a person because actionless faith is useless. Actionless faith is useless. Verses 15 through 17. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace. I know you have a lot, a lot of anxiety, but go in peace. Be warm or stay warm and be well fed. Don't be hungry anymore. But you don't give them what the body needs. You don't give them any food. You don't give them any clothes. You don't help them to, to come to a state of peace mentally to some degree, emotionally. You just say, be warm, be filled, go in peace. James asks the question, verse 16, what good is it? Does it do any good for their hunger? Yes or no? no. Does it do any good for their warmth? Yes or no? No. What good is it? It's no good. Verse 17, in the same way, faith if it does not have works, is dead by itself. So what advantage is it to say be warm and filled when they're cold and hungry? What good is it? It's no good. What advantage, advantage is it? It's of no advantage. James even goes so far to say that that faith is dead on its own terms. It's useless on its own terms because it does not it's no use, it's no good, it's no advantage to those in need. It's useless. Now, though this is an illustration that actionless faith cannot save, in the book of James, this is more than an illustration, he commands us, look at verse 26, or verse 27 of James, chapter 1. James 1, 27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is what? Is this, is what? To look after orphans and widows in their what? In their distress. James cares about the poor. In James chapter 2, he talks about where you seat the poor, having sinful favoritism towards the rich to the neglect of the poor. If you have true faith in Jesus, you should care about the poor. You should care about the distressed. You should care about the needy. 
you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if your neighbor is poor, you should love your poor neighbor as if you were poor. What would you do for them? James is calling us implicitly to feed and clothe those who are in true distress and in true need with true help. Now, for those of us who are more well-off financially, we need to feel this call and set our personal and familial budgets accordingly. And I just want to pause here to commend BBC. Peter prayed for, uh, what were the two churches in the Crete Collective? Congress Heights in Washington, D.C., and Christ the Redeemer Church in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. These two churches are in financially, economically, and socially distressed and needy communities. These are church plants. It's going to take years for these churches to be self-sustaining. And so what we have done as a church is we've joined the Creed Collective. And we give money monthly from our budget to support churches in communities that are economically, financially, and socially distressed and neglected in our society. Ethnic minority communities. Why do we give, why, why do we invest on, in that as one of our highest priorities as a church family? Because we love Jesus and we trust that the gospel needs to spread there too. And churches that can support them should support them for this reason. So I want to commend you, church family, for supporting the Creek Collective and these two churches that we even prayed for, particularly this morning. So can actionless faith save someone? Yes or no? No. no. Reason number one, because it's useless. Reason number two, no, it cannot save anyone because it is demonic. Can demonic save, faith save anyone? Not if it's demonic, right? I mean, that's, that's what demons have, right? Okay, let, let's, let's jump into it. Look at verse, look, verse 18, next verse. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, as if you could, without actions, and I will show you faith by my actions. So here's the question. Anyone can claim to believe in Jesus. Anyone can claim to believe in God and have faith. How do you show it? Can you show your faith without works? James is saying, show it to me. If you could, it's invisible. Like the faith is an invisible thing. You can say you have faith, but do you actually trust in Jesus? That's invisible. Show me your faith without works. How do you do that? I will show you, James says, I'll show you my faith by my actions, by what I do. That's how you prove it. Faith is invisible and it only becomes visible through its actions. Just like life of a plant, right? The life of a tree or, or a, a bush. If, if it's a fruit tree, how do you know it has life in it? You can't just see the life. You can see the fruit that comes out from the life and that is evidence. The actions of the fruit show that the root has life in it. But you can't see the life in the root. You can only see the fruit of it, the evidence, the proof of it. So anyone can claim to have faith. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one, good. Is it good to believe that God is one, yes or no? Yes. Yes. Is God one? Yes. This is what every ethnic Jew, every Israelite knew. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. What does that mean? That means, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every kid knows that. In Hebrew, every Israelite kid knows that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what the Lord there is Yahweh. They say Adonai, not Yahweh, because they don't want to take the name of Yahweh in vain. So they just translate Adonai. They say Adonai when they see the divine name. But the point here is that there is only one God, and he is one. And so there, therefore, verse 5. What's verse 5? You don't know. This is Deuteronomy 6.4. So Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Therefore, love Yahweh the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Why? Why? Why should you love God with all you are? Because there is only one God. Because Yahweh God is one. If there were two gods, then you need to love both gods and you give you give one God half your heart, you give the other God the other half of your heart. If there's three gods, you've got to break up your love three ways. 
right? Depending on how many gods there are, you need, you need to be devoted to those gods faithfully. But because God is one, all of your love goes to that God from your heart, from all of your heart, from all of your soul, and from all of your strength because there's only one God. Now, by God's providence, we read that from Mark chapter 12. In our rotation here, you can see that here on page, what page is this? Page 4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Mark adds, with all your mind and with all your strength. It's good to confess that God is one because it's true. But the point of confessing that God is one is so that you would love this God with all that you are. So is it good enough to say that God is one? Is it good enough to say that God is lovely and that he deserves all of our love? Is that good enough to believe that God is one? To say that? Well, let's finish verse 19. You believe that God is one. That's good. It's true. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Are demons saved? Yes or no? no? No. Do they believe that God is one? Yes. Do they fear God? Yes. I mean, if you look at the stories of Jesus with casting out demons, when demons come in contact with Jesus, they tremble. They beg Jesus, please don't send us to the abyss. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Please, 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 Jesus, don't, don't hurt us. They know and shudder at God the Son. They're scared of God the Son. They know that God is one. They know, Jonathan Edwards said that they know it so much. They were in the best seminary, the best divinity school of all time. They were in heaven, in God's presence. They know that God is one. They believe that God is one. But they don't love him. They don't love him with all they are, as if he's one. He is not their Lord and they are condemned and damned forever. And so if you say you believe in Jesus, if you say that God is one and he deserves all my love, but you don't have any actions of love, you have no expressions of real love for Jesus as your God, as your Lord, as your highest priority and preeminent in all of your life, over all relationships and all priorities and all ambitions, and all objectives, and all responsibilities, and all hobbies and privileges you enjoy, if he's not above and permanent over all that, then your faith is no better than a demon's faith. It cannot save. So the second reason why actionless faith does not save is because it's merely mental assent. It thinks true thoughts, but it does not entrust one's heart and soul and mind and strength to that God. So it's demonic and deceptive. Faith in Jesus, real faith in Jesus, should move beyond mental assent to a transformative love for God. When you love God, he changes you. He transforms you. Not immediately in a snap where you become perfect, but through life and through trials and through tests, he grows your love for him. He shows you his loveliness and he captivates you. Is Jesus lovely to you? If he is, it will show in your life somehow. And Paul said the same thing in Galatians 5, verses, verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. All that matters is faith. You're, Paul would say, you're justified by faith apart from works. All that matters is faith. But that faith works through love. So that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself because you believe that God is one. All that matters is faith in Jesus that works itself out through love. So can actionless faith in Christ save someone? Yes or no? No. One, because it's useless. Secondly, because it's demonic. Third, because this faith is invalid. It's invalid. Verses 20 through 26. And here is the longest point, or 20 through 25. And then we have one verse for, the, for point number four. So this is the longest one, uh, point three. 
it is invalid. And it takes up the most verses, verses 20 through 26. Look at verse 20 with me. Senseless person. By the way, uh, I said today in our Sunday morning Sunday school class that um, it is not only okay, in, in some ways it's right to mock people who predict when Jesus is coming again. Because we don't know when he's coming again. And if you're thinking, is it okay to mock people ever? Well, I mean, look at verse 20. What does James call this person? Senseless, Senseless person. You fool. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Do you want to see that faith without works is useless? Do you want to see that it's invalid? And I'm getting the word invalid from, from later on in the passage. He's talking about the uselessness of actionless faith. I'm going to talk about the validity, the, the, how it's invalid when, you're, when your faith is without action. So let's go into Abraham. So we're going to look at Abraham, and then we're going to look at Rahab. Verses 20, 22 through 24 is about Abraham, and verse 25 is about Rahab. Okay? So let's think about Abraham's life first. Verse 21 says this, 22 says this, 21, I'm sorry, 21. Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by actions in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his actions or his works, and by works or by actions, his faith was made complete or mature. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. So here's the story of Abraham. Keep your finger here in James chapter 2 and I want you to turn in your Bible all the way to Genesis, the very beginning of your Bible. Genesis 22. If you want to hear a meditation on Genesis 22:12, go to our church website or our YouTube channel or a podcast. I'm not sure if our podcast is updated. But you could go to the podcast eventually and listen to uh, Jim's message on Genesis 22 there. But let's look at this story. Genesis 22, Abraham is offering, according to James, um, offering Isaac on the altar. Look at Genesis 22, verse 1. <laughs> After these things, it says in Genesis 22, 1, God tested Abraham. That's key. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham answered. Take your son, God said, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So there's, there's a test. God is testing Abraham. What is he testing? Abraham's what? Faith, maybe. I mean, in verse 12, it says, now I know you fear God. So maybe his fear of God, which is another form of faith. Maybe his love for God. So God is testing Abraham and he says, take your only son. Now he had another son, but take your, your only son, the son you love. Not that he didn't love Ishmael either, but take the son you love and go to Mount Moriah. And what does he want him to do to Isaac? Sacrifice him. That means put him on an altar, lay him out on the altar, grab, tie him down, grab your knife, kill him, and then burn his body as an offering pleasing to me. That's what you need to do, Abraham. Take your son, put him on the altar, walk with him, lay him out there, bind him, kill him, burn his body as an offering to me. There's the test. What would you do? I only have one son, only begotten son, as far as I know. Um, I say as far as I know because Francis is pregnant, just to clarify. <laughs> That's what I meant, but as far as I know. Um, but yeah, if God told me to take my son, whom I love, and tie him down and kill him and burn him, what would I do? What does Abraham do? I love this story because Abraham does not hesitate. Look at verse 3. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for burnt offering and set out to go to the place God told him about. Let's go. So he goes, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. You see what, what Abraham's doing? He's just down. He's just go. I mean, that's the way that Moses is writing about Abraham. 
He's, he's there. What do you want me to do, God? You want me to take my son and burn him? Okay, cool. I got you. I got you, God. I got this. <laughs> you know, wake up early next morning. He's ready to go. Coffee's ready to go. He's chopping the wood. Let's go. We got a, we got a, a trip here. We're going to worship the Lord. Right? And he goes. He just goes. There's no hesitation here. And so he, then he tells the young men, we're going to go there to worship. Go back to verse 5. Then, now notice what he says here. Then we're going to what? Then we'll come back to you. That's weird. What is Abraham about to go do? He's about to go there and take his son and what? Kill him and burn him. And he says, hey guys, you chill here for a second. I'm going to go there and we're going to make a sacrifice. He doesn't say what it is, right? We're going to go make a sacrifice and we're coming back. He says, we're coming back. That's weird. Abraham took the wood for burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. Isaac, you carry this stuff up, up the hill. <laughs> In his hand, he took the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham. He said, my father, dad. And he replied, here I am, my son. I should say that to my son sometimes. Here I am, my son. <laughs> Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Trust me. <laughs> then the two of them walked on together. Now, when they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. Presumably, Isaac helped him build this altar. Then he bound his son, Isaac, and placed him on top of the wood. Okay, so Isaac is probably, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 here. Abraham is 100 years old, right? Uh, maybe his son could take him or at least outrun him, right? But, but here he is. In some ways, his, he convinced his son, son, you need to get up on this altar and I'm about to kill you and burn you. And then we're going to go back down <laughs> to, uh, to your friends and we're going to go back home. So, so Isaac is there on the altar, just laid out. So, Isaac, so there he is. He's bound there, tied up, just in case Isaac gets cold feet, can't move, right? <laughs> bound to the altar. Then Abraham, verse 10, reached out, took the knife to slaughter his son. So he's there and he is not hesitating. He's just, he's ready to go. He's been ready since three days ago, since God gave him the order. He's ready to go. Gets there, gets the knife. He's about to go. And then as he raises his hand to slaughter his son, verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. I had to say his name twice to make sure he heard before it was too late. And Abraham again said, here I am. Then he said, the angel said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. So there's the fear of God, faith in God, love for God, fear God. Since you have not withheld your only son from me. I know you love your son, but clearly you're down to obey me. So there's Abraham, resolved, determined, decisive. He fears God. He trusts God. He loves God. How do you know? How do you know this invisible faith? You could see it. He's willing to kill and burn his son as an offering to God. And so James tells us that his faith worked together with his works. His faith, in God, his faith worked with his works and then matured his faith. His faith was made complete. Now, here's the question. Why in the world... Would a dad take his son and put him on the altar and get ready to kill him? Why would Abraham do that? Does Abraham hate his son, yes or no? No. No. Is Abraham just going crazy, yes or no? no? No. Why would he do this then with no hesitation? Here's why. Because of Genesis 21.12. Just go back a chapter. Genesis 21.12 says, So God tells Abraham, Another hard thing to do. Send away the older, your first son, Ishmael. Send him and his mom away. And Abraham is, is, um, is distressed because he's sending his son away. So what does God say in verse 12 of chapter 21? But God said to Abraham, don't be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her. Why? Because your offspring will be traced through whom? Isaac. Isaac. And I will also make a nation of your slave son. So your son's going to be fine. I'll take care of Ishmael, but the promised offspring that's going to bless all the nations is going to come through whom? Isaac. Isaac. You hear that? God promised that through Isaac, that boy, the offspring is going to come. 
So when God says, kill your son, he's like, I got you. Okay, I'll kill him. Why? Because you said, God, that the offspring is going to come through whom? Isaac. So we're going to be back. I'm going to go to this hill and kill him real quick. I'm going to burn him up real quick. And then, then somehow God's going to bring him back together and cause him to be alive again, resurrect him. That's what it says in Hebrews 11. And then we're going to come back down and go back home. Because God said, through Isaac, the offspring is coming. And Isaac has no kids yet. So clearly, some, I mean, if God's going to make my 90-year-old wife give birth to Isaac, then God could do anything. And if God could do that, then God could take my burnt, killed son and cause him to live again and then have offspring. I trust you, God. I believe that. So tell me, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. Because I believe your promise. I believe your word. See, Abraham's faith, Abraham has a faith, he has a promise from God. Does he believe it? Yes. Does it show in actions? Yes. And what does the actions do? According to James, go back to James chapter 2 now. James 2, James says that faith works with the actions, and through the actions, his faith was made what? Verse 22. His faith was made complete or mature. When God tests your faith in his promises, and you trust God's promises, does, does God come through? Will God come through? Yes or no? Yes, every time God will come through. And every time God comes through, what does that do to your faith? It makes it what? Stronger. It makes it more mature. It makes it more complete. That's what tests do. That's what tests of faith do. It strengthens your faith. And that's what it did for Abraham. And so Abraham proved that he really did trust God. So that when you get to verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. So there it is. Abraham's faith had actions that proved that his faith was valid, was justified, maybe. Look at verse 24. You see now that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So you see this in verse 21, justified by works. And in verse 24, you're justified by works and not by faith alone. So now we've got to pause here. Well, before we get to this, let me just say something about the Abraham story, just because it's so powerful and so edifying. Let me ask you a question for application. If Abraham was willing to obey God, even when the command didn't make sense to him, the question for you this morning is, are you willing to obey God when God's commands don't make sense to you? Do God's commands always have to make sense to you when it's clear in the Bible what God is saying before you obey? Or as long as you can understand what he's telling you to do, is that enough for you? What is God calling you to do? You personally, what is God calling you to do right now in this week, in this season of your life? What is he calling you to do? And are you trusting him? Is your invisible faith going to be made visible by your choices and by your commitments? Has it been the past months? Okay, now we get to verse 24 and it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This sounds like it's contradicting Paul because Paul says we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In Romans chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 19. Paul is very clear. We are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And here, James is saying, you see that a man is justified by, uh, by works and not by faith alone. So here's my question to you, church family. Who is right? James or Paul? How many of you say Paul? You guys are wrong. How many of you say James? How many of you say both? All right, yeah, both. James and Paul are both right, yes. We agree that um, if the Bible's inerrant and God is coherent and not contradicting himself, then James and Paul cohere. Okay, so now the question is, how do they cohere? I mean, if they're not disagreeing with each other, it sounds like a disagreement, right? But it's not. Okay, well, still, how is it not? Okay, so they both agree that our right standing before God is on the basis of Jesus Christ and his work alone. 
And that work and righteousness of Christ is received by faith alone, not by works. They both agree with that. And they both agree that true saving faith has actions. That true saving faith is not an actionless faith, but it is a faith that has actions, that works itself out. So James and Paul agree on that. So how do they cohere? Now there are three good options. The bad option is that they disagree. Or the, and, and that one is right, not the other. That's wrong, okay? We believe that you are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works. And that faith is a living, valid, useful, divine, not demonic faith that will act. That's what James and Paul both believe and teach. But how do these two th things fit together? I'll give you three options. My, op my option, I'll just tell you now, is the third option. I think I'm going to teach and preach the third option, but I hope to show you that it doesn't matter really which one of these three. Ultimately, the application is the same. So the first way that they might cohere is that um, Paul actually says, we are not, you're justified by faith and not by works of the... Did you hear me what I said earlier? Not by faith, uh, by faith and not by works of the... Of the law, the law covenant. So some people say, oh, it's not talking about works in general. It's talking about the works of the law covenant, the old Israeli covenant. So circumcision and, and um, all the commands through Moses, the old Israelite, old Israeli covenant. We're not justified by those works, but we're still justified by, uh, by faith with other works. Um, so, so that's one is like he's talking about those works in general. I mean, specifically and not works in general. I don't think that's what is going on here. A second thing is, and here's the main debate. Here's the two sides now, the last two options. What does Paul, or what does James mean by justify? Does he mean by justify justification before God? Or does he mean justification before men of your claim? Justification before God is God accepts you because of Christ's righteousness. Is that what James is talking about? And Paul, is that what James is talking about? Or is James saying it's justification in the sense that I claim that I have faith? Well, how is that faith justified? By my works. So my claim to faith is now valid. It's validated. It's justified. Okay, so does justify mean justification before God or justification before people with your claim? Does that make sense? You see the two options here? If people think it's justification before God, they could say um, that, that God takes, he justifies us by faith alone in Christ, but that faith has works as the result and fruit and evidence, and so God justifies us based on the basis of real faith, which includes works, or that manifests itself in works. And he did that when we got converted. So I got converted in 1989. So one way of thinking about it is PJ, God justified PJ in 1989 and declared PJ righteous based on his faith in Christ that had, that had works there and had, continues to have works till this day. Or another way of thinking about it is in the final judgment, the final justification at the final judgment, God will say PJ is righteous, not in 1989, but in the future, PJ is righteous because of his faith in Christ and the evidence and fruit is works. So that's one way that James and Paul could agree. I think it means this other option. It really, they're both, they're both okay. I think it actually means this other option that we are, our, our claim to faith is shown and validated by works. Our claim to saving faith. Do you have saving faith? Are you really righteous in Christ? Are you really saved? That validation of that claim is by actions. And I think that's what James is getting at here. So, so it, it validates, it proves that someone is righteous when they claim to have faith. Now, the reasons I believe that, and really, really, really whichever side you fall on in this church, it's not, I mean, you're theologically right, okay? It's just, what is James actually referring to here? It's not too big in terms of the, the application. But the reasons why I think it's, it's, it's point of validation is because verse 18, just look at verse 18. He doesn't bring up justification yet until verse 21. So it's about salvation, which is more broad. Verse 18, he says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. So he's talking about showing the faith. In, verse, in chapter 1, 26 and 27, he's talking about true religion. And then he's talking about actions that show whether your religion is true. James 1, 27. A third reason why, or last reason why, two more reasons. In verse 21, the way I, I would phrase the question of verse 21 is, are you willing to learn that faith without actions is invalid? I think that's what he's getting at with the main question of this section. Do you want to see that it's useless? It's not valid? 
And then lastly, and here's maybe the most important point for me, why I think it's this view. We read Genesis what? The, the whole sacrifice of Isaac is Genesis what? What chapter? 22. 22. Genesis 22, right? In Genesis 22, Abraham offered Isaac. And then it says in, in James 2 verse 23, scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That crediting is justification before God. When God credits Abraham with righteousness, credits him with righteousness by faith, that's when Abraham was declared righteous by God and the, the righteousness of God was accounted to him. What chapter was that in Genesis? Does anyone know that quote? That quote is coming from Genesis chapter 15. Uh, Calvin read it in the scripture reading. That's Genesis 15 verse 6. Before Ishmael was born, before Isaac was born, Abraham was looking at the stars and God said, I'm going to make your offspring as numerous as that. And then Abraham believed God, and then Moses says, Abraham believed God, and God credited that faith to Abraham, justified Abraham as righteous. In Genesis what? 15. Decades later, he sacrifices Isaac or was about to sacrifice Isaac. And that validates the claim that Abraham really had faith and really was justified before God. So the timeline of Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, in my mind, makes me think that Genesis 22 is the validating, it's the justifying of the claim that Abraham had faith. Okay? I hope that's not confusing. Whichever view you have of those two views, the point here is saving faith must have actions. If it's, that's the true saving faith, the true justifying faith is a living faith that has actions. And I would say that, that, that those actions validate your claim that you really believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go to another story, a shorter story. Rahab, verse 25. In the same way, wasn't Rahab, the prostitute, also justified by works? I would say validate, her claim is validated by her works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route. Is it route or route? I said route earlier, I said route this time. I don't know. All right. Um, in Joshua chapter 2, the story's in Joshua chapter 2. So in Joshua chapter 2, um, spies come. So, so now... Joshua and the Israelites have crossed the Jordan River. They're about to invade the land of Canaan, the promised land, and kill all these people as an act of God's righteous judgment on the Canaanites so that Israel can now take the land. So Jericho is the first city. They send spies to Jericho. They go there and then they run into this prostitute named Rahab. Rahab hides them in her house or outside at the top of their house in I can't remember what, not quite a well, but in some, some sort of covering, hides, hides the men, the spies. And then when the Jer those in Jericho, the Canaanites in Jericho, find out that there are spies from Israel that are about to invade the land, are in their city. They go everywhere looking for these spies. They go to Rahab's house, knock on her door, say, have you seen the spies? And Rahab lies. She says, I don't know where they are. I haven't seen them. I, oh, I did see them, but I think they went that way. And she lies and tells them they went a different direction. Okay. She, she, um, and when she does that, then she goes up before, before sleeping, she goes up to the, the spies and says, hey, listen, I heard, I heard that you guys, that Yahweh has saved you and Yahweh has sent you to destroy us. And everyone here is freaking out, including me. So I'm hiding you here because I see that your God, Yahweh, is going to judge us and I want Yahweh, your God, to save me. And my family. So let's make a deal. I'll let you guys hide here and you guys don't kill us when you take over this land. When Yahweh gives you this land and this city. And they say deal and then they leave. Now what, what James's point is this. Does Rahab believe in Yahweh? Yes or no? Yes. Does she believe that Yahweh is, is um, going to conquer the Canaanites? Yes. yes. Um, even though she's scared of the Israelites or she's scared of, and you know what? She, she does it to the point of risking her own life. She's willing to risk her own life in courageous faith, courageous faith. She's risking to, or willing to risk it by hiding them so that if they, if, if she gets caught, that she's the one who had the spies, that those in Jericho would kill her. But she says, I don't care. 
Like, we're, we're going down. This ship is going down. They crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptians were wiped out. They're killing all these, other, all these other nations on the other side who are stepping up to Israel. They're about to come to our land. Oh, no, I'm not having any of this. I'm willing to die. I, I'm going to go on Yahweh's side. I'm going to go on these people's side. How do we know that Rahab had faith? Her courageous risk, her, the, the fact that she took a risk, right? And she betrayed her own people. She betrayed her family. I mean, other than her household, like her, her extended family. She, she betrayed her own people for Yahweh's people. Now, she was scared to die, of course, which is, which is fine because she was going to die. She would have died. But um, that faith was shown in actions. And that faith, we know this from Romans 10, faith comes by what? Hearing. hearing, hearing the word of Christ. And Rahab had heard that Israel and Yahweh brought them out of Egypt and was conquering these other lands. She heard about Yahweh and faith came by hearing such that when the, when the spies came, she was willing to side with them and that validated her faith. So, can actionless faith save someone? Can actionless, actionless faith in Christ save someone? Yes or no? no? No. Why? Because it's useless, because it's demonic, and because it's invalid. It's only invisible and never becomes visible. Therefore, it's never validated or justified. And the underlying reason, really, if I could summarize those three reasons into one reason, it's the last verse, verse 26. So you could call this a fourth reason. It's really a summary reason or the underlying reason. Why, why, can, why will invalid and useless and demonic faith, why will that not save anyone, even if it's in Jesus, even if it's in, even if it's in the true gospel? Why will it not save? Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is what? Dead. So also faith without actions is dead. If your body has no breath in it, if there's no more air in the lungs, your body is dead. That's another word for spirit is breath. If the body has no breath in it, it's dead. And just like a dead body, still there, but it's dead, faith without actions is like a body without breath. Faith without actions is like a body without breathing. Saying you trust in Jesus without any acts of faith in Jesus is like you have no oxygen in your body. You're dead. Your faith is dead. And it cannot and will not save you or anyone. So it's a dead faith. It's an invalid faith. It's a demonic faith. It's a mental only faith. It's a useless faith. And that cannot save you even if you believe that Jesus is Lord, that he died for sinners and rose from the dead. So let me apply all of this. Application. Christian, I want you to be encouraged and moved by Jesus to know that your faith is real. I hope from this sermon you're saying, okay, I'm not perfect, but I know my faith is real. I can see actions in my life that show that my faith is real. And I want to keep acting on the, on the fact that I do trust in Jesus. Church family, I want you as a church family to look at other members and prospective members and expect if someone says they're a Christian, expect that they're going to obey Jesus. Should you expect perfect obedience? Yes or no? No. no. But should, should you expect real tangible obedience? Yes or no? Yes, you should. Expect that of each other. Not in a guilt trip, condescending way. In a hopeful, joyful way. Man, you believe in Jesus? That's great. I know God's going to work in you. I know he's going to grow you. I know you're going to want to obey Jesus. We need to understand. One of the marks of a healthy church, according to one author, is understanding biblical conversion. Because if you don't understand biblical conversion, you don't know who a member of the church should be. And if you fill up this church with a bunch of non-Christians who are fake Christians and professing Christians and we're a congregational church where we're voting on things, this church will decline. That's how churches die. That's how churches get unhealthy. Churches get unhealthy when you fill churches with people who are not truly Christian or are not truly acting on their faith in Christ. So it's up to you, church family, to keep making sure the members you take in are truly Christian. If you're not a Christian... Like I said, I know that some Christians, so-called Christians, are hypocrites. But you need to realize that they need people, they need Jesus to transform them. And you as a non-Christian, you need Jesus to change and transform you. And he will. Jesus changed a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. And she's saved, forgiven, cleansed. Jesus can change any of us sinners. And he can change you too. Children, I want you to keep looking to Jesus. 
keep reading your Bible. Children, if you don't know how to read, learn how to read. And then when you learn how to read, keep reading your Bible and looking to Jesus. Pray. Don't just read your Bible, though. Pray and ask Jesus to change you. Ask Jesus to give you faith that takes actions. And if you're a discouraged Christian here this morning, this is not a call to perfect faith. It's not a call to perfect action. If you're discouraged and saying, man, PJ, I just feel like there's so many things I don't do. Here's what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to trust in Jesus and surrender your life to Jesus. He's the one who will empower you to change. Don't figure it out on your own. Don't try to look for the power within to change. Trust in Jesus. And if you're someone who's saying, I, I know this passage, PJ, I understand this passage. I'm a Christian, I'm good. If you're good, I want to challenge you by saying this. Even now, when God tests your faith, it's still going to be hard. Maybe you've become too comfortable with your Christianity and you're not actually stepping out to the places where Jesus is telling you to take a risk. And if you truly trust in Jesus, don't get settled in comfortable BBC Christianity. Extend yourself out and take a step of faith, trusting Jesus in obedience. I don't know what that means for you, but there are some hard or difficult tasks for you that the Lord is calling you to trust him in. Use this passage as a, as a motivation to say, yes, Lord, I trust you and I will follow. Because Jesus came not only to save you, but to change you, to grow you, to lead you into action by trusting him. He will regularly call you to action and he'll walk with you and he will show you that he is good. He is glorious and he is worthy. He is trustworthy. You can trust him. Now let's go back to that story I told you in the beginning when I was a pastor of a church and there was a prospective member wanting to join the church. Now I did an interview with this member, prospective member, and I said to this prospective member, I will not recommend you to the church unless you definitively, decisively, and demonstrably show that you're repenting from sexual immorality. So you got to find a way to show that in a way that's demonstrable and not merely verbal. And I was thinking, I think this person is repentant. I just think this person needs that push. So the members meeting came, maybe 30 minutes before the members meeting came, I got a message from the person. I... Moving out, I'm leaving this person. I do want to join the church. Please recommend me to the church to join the church. And that member faithfully followed Jesus in that church and continues to faithfully follow Jesus today. That faith was not merely verbal, useless, invalid, demonic, and dead. No, that faith was useful. That faith was divine. That faith was valid. That faith was alive. And so is yours. Your faith is alive, brother. Your faith is alive, sister. So keep trusting and walking with Jesus and you will prove Christ true and you will strengthen Christ's people with your faith. Now there's one more thing that your faith shows and I need to say this to close. What does faith show? Our faith is in whom? In God or in Christ, right? And so our faith shows the faithfulness of Christ or God. Our trust shows the trustworthiness of God. So when someone helps the poor in distress, their compassion shows that their faith is real. When someone uh, loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, when they say that God is one, that shows that their faith is real. When someone takes a risk and risks their lives to, to side with God, that shows that their faith is real. When Abraham um, is willing to sacrifice his son, that shows that his faith is real. It shows that they think that God is trustworthy, and every time they've proof that God is trustworthy. God is faithful. The compassionate person to the distress proves that God is the rewarder of those who sacrifice their convenience and their resources to care for and give to the poor and distressed and to meet their needs. Those who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength out of faith, they prove that God is faithful to be the lovely, valuable, worthy, glorious treasure that, he's, that he is. For those who are like Rahab, who are taking risks of faith, they prove that God is the only hope to deliver us from the righteous judgment of death that we all deserve. 
that God is faithful to entrust your life to and even risk your life. Now, Rahab was saved, but even if they perish, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, they said, God could save us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down to your idol because he'll still be faithful even in death. We prove that God is able to deliver us from death. And just like Abraham, what did, God, what did Abraham say to his son? When, when, when Isaac said, where's the lamb? What did Abraham say? say? God will what? God will provide. And did God provide? I didn't finish the story. After, after he took Isaac from the altar, there was a ram in the thicket. And God provided a ram. They sacrificed the ram. And, God, and then Abraham named that mountain, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Jireh, God will provide. God will provide the necessary lamb for the sacrifice. And he did, didn't he? On that same mountain, you know that mountain became the mountain of Jerusalem? On that very mountain, the same mountain where Abraham offered Isaac, God the Father brings his son to that mountain outside the city gate. He is mocked, he is scorned, he is tortured. He carries a cross outside the gate on that mountain. And he is hung up on the cross. And there is no angel to say, stop! There is no stop. This time, the father would kill his son. He did sacrifice his son to save his people from their sins. He is trustworthy. And our faith shows that this God, if God would give us his son, and he did give us his son, how will he not also with him graciously give you everything you need for every test you have of faith for the rest of your life? He is faithful. He is trustworthy. Trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us, you love your son, that you'd give him a bride by sacrificing your son. You are trustworthy. We trust you to provide the lamb that we needed to be saved. You'll provide for us every bit of faith and action we need to keep growing. You'll validate our faith. You'll give us opportunities to serve the distressed and the poor. You will come through, Lord, because you have come through. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to check our hearts, to know that we are truly trusting in Jesus and help us to keep acting on our faith in Jesus because we know he is glorious. We know he is lovely. We know he is compassionate and we know that he will finally save us. Help us, Lord, to rest in that love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a moment now, the next four minutes or so, three minutes, to share a takeaway with someone around you, something that God pressed on you, and then we're going to move to the Lord's Supper. I'm only giving you three minutes because we've got to do the Lord's Supper. So if you're a guest here, feel no obligation to share, just listen in on a conversation around you.
30 more seconds. 30 more seconds. friends let me have your attention here at the front as we prepare for the Lord's Supper do we have three volunteers after I'm gonna read some scripture and pray but three volunteers to to pass out the Lord's Supper who's doing that this morning do not okay grace and Josh and Clark okay let me pray first. let me read scripture first and then pray and then we'll we'll do this okay but you guys could move up closer here to the front for this okay so um, Jesus said that this cup is the...